The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Father God, we bow before you this morning asking you to do the impossible thing. Father, you've said in your word that um, with, with you... With God, nothing is impossible. But according to our own efforts and our own abilities and our own powers, we simply cannot come to this word and rightly hear it or receive it. We need your spirit of wisdom and insight and understanding and revelation. So we're asking you now, God, by the work of your spirit, to cause this book, your holy word, to penetrate to the innermost core of who we are, to do surgery upon us, to shape us and mold us and change us in the image of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So if you've, if you've not gathered yet, one of my New Year's resolutions, and I don't, I don't make many, but one of them is more reading in corporate worship. There is a tendency, particularly, particularly among us Southern Baptist types, to believe that the only appropriate use of the Word of God is the explanation of it. I can't trust you people. I can't just deliver the word to you people and trust that you're going to have any idea what to do with it. But over and over again throughout Scripture, we're called to publicly read the word. To trust that the Spirit of God will do in the people of God with the word of God exactly what it was meant to do. It's not that you people are smart enough. It's not that I'm smart enough. It's not that we finally achieved some level. Okay, good. We finally attained to the lofty level that I can just deliver to you the plain word of God and trust you to do right with it. There is an appropriate time. We've come to that time, of course. I'm going to read the word. Then I'm going to do my best under the power of the Holy Spirit to explain some things, to expose some things to you from the word, to help guide some of your thoughts in this. But I don't want to dishonor the word of God, nor do I want to dishonor the spirit of God, nor do I want to rob the people of God. I'm not just delivering to you the plain word. So you'll notice more of that. I don't know where we land yet. There'll be some awkwardness. There's, there's, every time there's a change in corporate worship, there's some awkwardness. I, I tremble. Anytime there's a change, I tremble more about baby dedications than I do preaching at times. Not because there's something loftier about that, just because it's a, it's a change and there's more room for me to get awkward. And I can be very awkward or, or to mess something up. And so I'm asking you to, to bear with me. We're, we're just we're seeking God's will, always seeking God's never assuming we've made it. Never assuming we've just mastered it. Now, that's one of the downsides. This is not my sermon this morning, but I'm just sharing something with you. This is one of the, the downsides to where we are because we're not high church, very liturgical. There's, there's not some 
um, some bishop that comes and, and tells us how we're to lay out our service. It's the wild, wild west here, man. And, well, amen for you. I think I would have made a good soldier sometimes, sometimes not so much. because I can be a bit of a butt, but sometimes I think I would have made a good. So I like some I like somebody tell me what to do here. Sometimes I'm thinking, wouldn't it just be nice if the word of God just said you sing one song and you use these instruments, but not these. And you sing in this method, but not that method. And and you offer this prayer at this time. I'll be honest with you. I wanted our prayer of confession to be us all praying together, but it felt too Catholic. And I didn't know if you were going to sit for it. Maybe that's where we go. I I genuinely don't know. I'm just seeking God. What do you want us to do together As, as we gather together in your presence, knowing We need to be changed and we need to be strengthened and we need to be encouraged and you need to be glorified. See, I'm I'm happy, Matt, that that we don't report to some Billy Graham doesn't write our weekly order of service and float it down to us somehow. We we get to we get to find it. But man, it's. We're going to we're going to keep trying. We're going to keep keep shaping and keep seeking. And just about the time we feel like the ground is settling underneath us, guess what? I'm bringing back the bells. <laughs> oh, yeah, don't laugh that hard at that, Haley. That's not fair. <laughs> Go ahead and stand to your feet, please. We've returned to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. This is the holy inerrant, infallible, authoritative, and sufficient word of God. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. All God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Father, would you make this book live to me? And would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my Savior? Would you make this book live to me? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I've got a sign hanging in my office. If you, you come to visit my office, it's actually two canvases that make up one big sign. It's about three foot by six foot. And what that sign says is, it's a quote from Robert Murray McShane. And it says, what a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. You can learn an awful lot about a man. You can be there with him as he kneels before God. And so I wonder, what sort of things do you ask God for when you pray? What about when you pray for your wife or your children, 
your husband, your grandchildren? What sort of things do you ask God for when you pray for those that are most precious to you? What about this church? When you pray for this church and beloved, I, I hope you pray for this church. When you pray for this church, what sort of things do you ask God for? And as you listen to this prayer from the Apostle Paul, do you find yourself praying for the same kinds of things that he prays for? He's telling these people what he's prayed for them. And we might do well to ask, why would you tell somebody what you're praying for for them? What's what's the purpose in this? And it seems clear to me that Paul is expressing to them, these are the things that are most important to me for you. Now, this is an inspired prayer under the hand of the Holy Spirit. These aren't just some things that Paul came up with on his own. The Holy Spirit inspired him to put pen to paper or to express these words that a scribe might put pen to paper and say these things. So in this inspired prayer, we're not just finding what Paul wants for the saints. We're finding what are God's priorities. What should be our priorities for ourselves and for everyone that we love. Now he's praying, of course, for believers. He says this. He says that because of this, for this very reason, for the reason of all that's come before, and for reason of the fact that I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, because I have confidence that you're a believer and your love towards all the saints. What a gift. What a gift of God to be able to pray for a group of people. Paul knew these people. He had been there for three whole years. Now he's been away for a season and he hears that their faith towards Jesus Christ and their love towards each other, towards all the saints. He's heard that that continues on. It's it's proven to be true. That they didn't have the rocky or the shallow soil, not just some fruit that sprung up for a moment. That they endured when so many others had fallen away. And we've talked about this. How lonely Paul's life could be at times when people got called away. Some people, for good reasons, they continued to follow God. And God just said, well, you're going to follow me somewhere else. But sometimes for very bad reasons, they were now opposing Paul. They were showing themselves to never really have been of the faith. They they left us to prove that they were never really of us. And so Paul rejoices in these. And he knows that their faith is sincere, that their faith is. In Christ Jesus is living and acting because of what it produces. And what does it produce? Love towards all the saints. And that word all, this, we've already covered this, but that word all jumped out at me again this week. Love towards all the saints. How do you, how do you know that someone has truly been transformed by the gospel? How do you know that someone is truly in Christ, a new creation? They've got an unnatural love for all the saints. And and I've told you how thankful I am to God. That's the spirit of Paul's prayer. You notice is thanksgiving. He's thanking God because this is all a gift from God. And Paul is filled with the spirit of thanksgiving for this gift from God, namely in these believers. And you've heard me say to you over and over and over again in these last few months, how thankful I am for the sweetness of of our communion. And I I keep hearing reports from people that I'm not the only one that missed Wednesday night church. I'm not the only one that missed Sunday evening gatherings. 
Because you people feel it too. You have a love for all the saints and there's some quirky ones here, myself included. It's, it's not a, Ephesus was not the perfect church and First Baptist Crosby is not the perfect church and some of us are not that easy to like or to love. But when you've been transformed by Christ and the Spirit of God now dwells within you, you have a love towards all the saints. That's why it's so troubling to me when people say that they love Christ Jesus that they're Christian, but they won't gather. You, you can't love Jesus and hate his bride. Or you, you can't love Jesus and just love the left arm of his bride because you're of the left arm crew. You love all the saints and you can't wait to be with the saints. Sundays are my favorite day. And it's not because it's a restful day for me. I'm more exhausted at the end of Sunday. It's not because there's not challenges that come on the Lord's day, because there are. But because I get to be with you people. And you feel that, this love towards all the saints. Paul could have listed any of a number of things that made clear to him that these people's faith was real, couldn't he? Jesus has said, if you, if you love me, you'll do what I tell you to do. You'll obey my commandments. Oh, he could have gone on this, this string of listing all the things, all the things, all the things that they do. You give to the needy. You don't cheat on your wife. You pay your taxes or whatever it is. He doesn't say that. Your love towards all the saints. And I can tell you as a fellow pastor with Paul, boy, does that fill your heart with thanksgiving. You, you know pieces of this with, when your kids love each other. That's my prayer for my, for my daughters. I, I'm not close with my biological family the way that I should be, the way that God has designed. For us. I, I, please don't, I'm not alienated from them. We had Christmas together and Thanksgiving together, and I love them and they love me. But I want for my daughters to have a bond that goes much more than I love you from over there. I want them to do life together and to share their experiences together and seek after God together. And I want when one of them struggles for the other to come alongside them and encourage them and to say hard things to each other. And as a, as a pastor, it's what I want. I want for you. And we have it. And it's not because of us. We didn't figure it out. Not, we didn't come up with some program, did we? They didn't teach me this at preacher school because I didn't graduate. <laughs> it's just the word of God and the spirit of God doing the work and the people of God. And you look up and you go, how about that? It actually works the way the Bible says it works. And so now Paul is going to God and he's thanking God for these people. And he's just listed out all these lavish gifts of God's grace, all spiritual blessings that are theirs. They were chosen before the foundation of the world. They were redeemed in the blood of Christ Jesus. They've been adopted as sons. They have an unfading and imperishable uh, inheritance waiting for them in heaven. And so you have to feel a little bit like Paul's going, well, what do you get the person who has everything? 
But he's not satisfied for them. And it's not that there's something lacking in all these lavish gifts. That's, these are glorious. But he also knows that the danger of, the real danger of apostasy and of the threat that immaturity brings to a people. We'll see as we move further on that he has a desire for these people that they press on to mature manhood. That they grow and they become solid in their foundation. That they're not just just blown to and fro by the wind and the waves of every new doctrine that comes along or experiences or emotions or their own hearts or threats from the enemy. That that they are grounded and they're mature and that they are they're solid. And so what does he pray for them? What is it? What is the thing that they need more than anything else? And we find that it's the knowledge of God. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. That this is the thing that Christians need more badly than anything else. This is the thing that we need. It's the knowledge of God. And, And so it should be no surprise to us that this is the thing that we find most lacking in the world. It's the knowledge of God. This is nothing like I asked you earlier. What kind of things do you pray for when you pray for your children, when you pray for yourself, when you pray for your church? Do you pray for this kind of thing? And I'll tell you, for most Christians, it's not that they they believe that you need to know God, but they view that very much as an evangelistic thing. Can I introduce you to God? Can I can I show you God in Jesus Christ And then we're going to get to showing you how to work this thing out, how to live this life out. And so the whole thing then becomes about whenever I'm sitting with believers, I believe that discipleship is just giving you all the rules now. And Paul's going to get to the imperatives soon enough when we get to chapter four. It's not it's not a. Primarily, kind of. When we get to chapter 4, there's, there's a break there. And we move away from the indicatives. And Paul no longer telling us who we are and, and what God's doing in us. And he moves forward to, now these are the ways you walk in holiness. And that's right. Jesus said that what, what's the purpose for us going out into the world? What's, what's the purpose in our life? It's to make disciples. And making disciples isn't. Just introducing them to Christ. It isn't just baptizing them. It's teaching them to obey whatsoever I have commanded you. That's right and that's good. But the problem is, if, if we go, okay, now you, you know something about God enough that you could utter some confession. Now let me show you how to walk like Christ. That leads to a life of frustration and, and legalism. Mostly what happens, if, if I'm honest, is... They can't do it and and they don't have a right understanding of the law of God and what the law is there for in the life of the believer. And so they get frustrated because they're going to still see it as a ladder to be climbed and they're going to get frustrated. They can't climb it. And so what do you do? You start bringing it down to your size. Start expressing it in ways that, okay, you can do this. You can do this. And so that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you stuff that you can do because people want to have something to do. That's not what Paul does. Before he gets to any indicatives, he's here. And I want you to look at the way he piles up these words with wisdom and revelation and enlightenment and knowledge. He knows that the way that we're transformed, the way that we walk 
in holiness. The way that we learn to delight in the law of the Lord is with unveiled face beholding the glory of God. And then we are being transformed. This is the ultimate need of man is to know God. I remind you of what Jesus said. We we don't have to just Look at what Paul prayed for the church. We can look at what Christ Jesus prayed for his bride on the night before his death. He's got a limited amount of time to kind of wrap things up, explain things to these people. The lens through which they're going to see the cross and and understand everything that happens is then they await the Holy Spirit coming upon them. And what does Jesus say in John 17, 3? He says, this is eternal life, that they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Grammar matters. The words, right? It's not just the thoughts that have been inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's the words that have been inspired by the Holy Spirit. And I ask you to take note that Jesus did not say this is the path to eternal life, knowing God. This is the way to eternal life. Knowing God, this is the way to make the best of eternal life is knowing God. He says this is eternal life. It is eternal life to know God. He's not just the means to some other end. He's not just a path to some other blessing. He is the end of it all. You want to know what eternal life is? You want to know what we long for in heaven? You want to know what we're going to experience in the new heavens and the new earth? It is going to be this, knowing God. Therefore, the way that we experience eternal life right now, not just waiting for heaven when, okay, I'll know him then and I'll know him more fully as I see him as he is. It's even now knowing God and growing in the knowledge of God. Again, I want you to think about all the ways that Jesus could have spoken about salvation here. The, the, the book. I know a lot of you are probably putting together uh, somebody this week. Brandon, did you post a list of books you planned on reading this year? Right? That just, just good, edifying books that you might read along with Scripture this year. Can I encourage you, if you've not already, to add to your list John Murray's Redemption Accomplished and Applied. But you, you read through that book and, and all the ways in which he, he helps us to look at redemption and, and salvation. And, and what, what is it? It's, it is being called and chosen and, and set apart unto God. It is being cleansed of everything that is unholy and unrighteous. It is having Christ Jesus righteousness credited to our account. It is being welcomed in to the family of God adopted and and reconciled to God. It is ongoing sanctification. It is the promise of perseverance to the very end. It is the assurance that we will reign eternally with Christ Jesus in a new heavens and a new earth. But what's the value in all of this? I ask you, what's the value in forgiveness? What's the value in being counted as infinitely righteous in Jesus Christ? What's the value in all offense and estrangement between you and God being taken down? The value in this is knowing God. Making it possible for you to come to and be with and know God. 
And that's not the way that the gospel is normally presented. The opportunity to know God, to see God, to be with God. And frankly, for a lot of people, that's not very enticing. That's what heaven is, just knowing God. You see, you go through these phases when you're a little boy and you think about heaven. The first phase is the baseball and ice cream phase. I think that heaven is all about me and whatever I want in the moment. And so I want ice cream because I always want ice cream and boom, there's ice cream. And I want to be playing baseball and boom, I'm playing baseball. And then you mature and you grow and you recognize that heaven's all about God. Being with God and glorifying God and worshiping God and knowing God. And then you get very sad because the thought of sitting on a cloud playing a harp, singing boring praise songs doesn't really jack you up. But I pray you've moved beyond that. That you recognize that literally we were created for this. Paul chose his words very carefully when he tells us that he is the father of glory. All that is beautiful and all that is majestic and all that is wonderful and all that is worthy and all that is meant to bring us satisfaction. Much more than ice cream or baseball or anything else this world could tempt us with. It is him. So that eternal life is knowing more of him. Experiencing more of him. Will we do other things in eternity? I believe so. There's going to be meals in heaven and wine in heaven and communion in heaven and maybe hiking and running and exploring in heaven. But we do all these under the banner. Under the shining banner of we're the people who know God. And as we do these things, as we explore and as we eat and as we commune together, we know more about God because he's there. And no longer is sin separating us from him and no longer is our vision clouded. That this is the promise, that this is eternal life, to know God. And if you've tasted that here and now, and if your heart has really been drawn to that here and now, then you're always going to want more. I want you to think about Moses and everything that he had, he had seen. The, the, the miracles and the plagues and a, a bush that just was burning and didn't go out. And the parting of the Red Sea and then God feeding them manna and, and, and water and from the rock and just all of these things, all these, all these things that, that God is going to expose Moses and the, the people to. And he's leading them to a promised land, a land flowing with milk and, and honey. And what does Moses want most of all? God, can I see your face? Would you show me your glory? That's how you know you've actually tasted it. I, I talk about food a lot because I, I love food and because it's an easy conversation, honestly. It's an easy conversation starter. When I sit down with somebody I don't know anything else to talk about, I just talk about food. It's common to us and it's, it's, it's pretty non-confrontational most of the time. And you can just have conversations about food. And so I'll, I'll sit down to people and I'm like, man, you know, you ever had a good lamb chop? And they'll be like, yeah, I had lamb I don't like it. I'm like, well, I don't think you've actually had lamb then. If this doesn't excite you, then I don't know that you've actually tasted it. And so this is the prayer of Jesus for the bride and for Paul, for the church and Moses for himself and his people. Peter as well in the reading that David brought to us. Second Peter one, two, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God 
and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So eternal life is knowing God, grace and peace are multiplied and knowing God, all things pertaining to life and holiness, they all come in knowing God so that everything that we desire, it comes through knowing God and it leads us right back to knowing God that he's the beginning and the end. He's the source and he's the purpose. He's the all in all. Everything I want comes in knowing God. And then when I know God, I realize all I ever really wanted was to know God. This is the whole of the Christian life, to know God. What are we trying to do in this room? Do you understand? To know God. And, and it can be overdone, right? In this contemporary Christian, a, a lot of people, there's a phase where everybody talked about experiencing God and having these personal experiences. And it got really kooky and weird because people thought you had to go and take peyote and hide on a mountain somewhere. And that's how you could know God. And that's not it at all. But we do. We want to know him and experience him and taste him. Trusting that. When we do, we're just going to want more. We're, we're never going to be let down. We're gonna, never going to come into the presence of God and go, that just wasn't all that I thought it was going to be. It wasn't all that the preacher promised it would be. So the, the question I guess we're supposed to ask then, at this new year, that's, a, that's the new year's the time for evaluate, evaluating the last year and considering the year that's coming. Do you know God more now than you did a year ago? I'm not talking about knowing more about God. Do you, is your knowledge of God richer and, and deeper and more intimate than it was last year at this point? I'm not asking if, you, if it is where you hope it would be. I'm not asking you to grade yourself on, on a curve or according to everyone else that's around you. We reformed types. We, we know lots of stuff about God. We, we study the, the word and, and we think about God and his attributes and, and, and the ways that he works. It's easy to get haughty and go, yeah, we, we know God. We are people that know God so much that we're Baptists and still we can have a glass of wine if we want it. We're better than everybody else. That's not what I'm talking about here. Do you have an intimate knowledge of God? But then the second question you've got to ask is, is that even in your top two or three or ten priorities? Are you satisfied with what you know of God? Do you feel as though perhaps you've mastered God? Tasted and seen all I want to know about God. Paul is praying here and look at the way that he trusts that God will bring this about, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. Now, in your Bibles and my ESV translation of the Bible, spirit is a capital, capital S. If, if you read out of a NASB or a King James version, it's a lowercase s and it says a spirit of wisdom 
and of knowledge. And I've already touched on this. I've preached on this text very briefly, if you'll recall, during ladies' retreat. Was that September or something like that? I, I touched on it because it seemed timely that we jumped ahead and looked at it. And we talked about this. And we know that this can't mean these people's first experience of the Holy Spirit, that this isn't regeneration. This isn't spiritual birth. We know this because Paul's already said in verse 13 that they've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He's already talking about these people knowing that they are believers. And if we look over at Colossians and the parallel to this text, Colossians 1.9, he says, we have not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. I told you that it seems to me what he's talking about here is absolutely a work of the Holy Spirit in bringing about these spiritual gifts, these spiritual workings, things that must come from, be given by, be directed by, and point back to the Spirit of God. It is God's Spirit informing and shaping and directing our spirit. We also know that this can't be some peculiar or special or, or highly elevated gift that's only given by the Spirit to certain few because he's praying for all the believers that they would have this. This isn't just for the elders or for the deacons or for the shepherds or for the overseers or, or for the theologians. These are for all these people. There were slaves there. There were people that couldn't read the scriptures there. There were women and children and men and old people and young people. There are all manner of people here. He's saying, I'm praying this for all of you. And he's able to pray it with absolute confidence. How? Because God's already promised it to them. Remember back in verse 8, he says that God's grace has been lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. This is what it looks like to pray in accordance with God's will. Again, I remind you, it's not just, hey, I want a pony, but it doesn't say pony in scripture. Let me see what I got to settle for. What promises will God answer? It's trusting that the promises that God has made are the best promises. I'm searching for treasure in the word of God because I know the things that he has promised, the things that he wills for my life are always better than anything else my little pea brain could dream up. So Paul knows this and therefore he prays it on behalf of his people. He prays that they would have this. Elsewhere in scripture, in James 1.5, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. God says, ask for wisdom. I want to give you wisdom. I'm not going to call you stupid or dull or lazy or slow. I don't give begrudgingly and I don't spank you when you come and ask me for this. I don't ask you why you're not wiser. What was the text that I read earlier out of Psalm 103? He knows our makeup. He knows we're dust. He made us out of the dust. He's not caught off guard when we come. We go, God, we're slow and we're stupid. And he says, I know, have some wisdom. He desires to give this to us. And all throughout the Old Testament, the idea of wisdom. It's tied very closely to a, to a knowledge and a conformity with God's law. An ability to choose and walk in what is right. Proverbs 4.11 says, I've taught you the ways of wisdom. I've led you in the paths of uprightness. That these two things, uprightness and righteousness and, and walking in accordance with and knowing the law of God, that is very closely tied with wisdom. Yep. 
Elsewhere in Proverbs 9.10, it tells us that fear of the Lord, this is the beginning of all wisdom. It's a, it's a proper fear of God. It's not the fear that causes you to go hide in the bushes in your nakedness when you realize that you've sinned against God. And it's not the fear that causes you to believe that, well, I might as well just scoff at God or turn my back on God because he's not to be trusted. It's the fear of God that causes you to delight in his law. That brings you to a point that you think that I don't want to bring dishonor to him. I want to please him and I trust that his paths are paths that lead to life. And when we get to the New Testament, particularly for the Apostle Paul, we see this idea of wisdom very much tied to the ability to comprehend and to understand and to know and to see all that Christ is for us. To reckon the gospel and Christ Jesus of coming to fulfill the law and to reconcile us to God. And all throughout, I would ask you, because I know I'm going to be running short. I'm only dipping my toe into this text. I'd ask you to go home and read through those first two chapters of 1 Corinthians. And all the times that God puts up the wisdom of man, which is foolishness and folly. And the wisdom of God, which the world finds to be foolishness. And a stumbling block and folly and how God has chosen to save us and to reveal himself, not through the wisdom of the world, not through what this world calls wise and discerning, but through what this world calls foolishness. And we we praise God that he's done this. He's put it on the bottom shelf for all of us. And so we shouldn't then be surprised when we look around. Paul says to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 7, that the world is always learning, but never able to arrive at knowledge of the truth. That we live in a world that has more access to more knowledge than at any other time. Do you understand this? In your hand, with a cell phone, you've got access to knowledge that no previous generation ever could have accessed in a million lifetimes. And now with the touch of a button, it's there. And I, I believe that within my children or at least my grandchildren's lifetime, they're going to find a way to take this information, put a chip in your head, and you'll have it without even using your fingers. And still God's word will be true. They are always learning and yet never coming to the knowledge that matters. The knowledge of God. That's why he ties to this. Not just that we would have wisdom that leads to knowledge, but a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. Apocalypsis is the word in Greek. It means to uncover something that was once hidden. How many times have I told you that your ability to know God, to understand the things of God, it is not tied to the power of your intellect. He's not a puzzle that we solve. He's not something that only the really smart people can comprehend. He is unknowable, unseeable, undiscoverable. Unless he reveals himself. One of Job's friends, you read through the interactions between Job and his friends, and they say some right things sometimes. And one of them says, can you by searching find God? You give the most brilliant names, the most brilliant minds in this world, billions and billions and billions of years. And unless God chose to reveal himself or anything about himself, they would have never known a thing. He is outside and above and beyond his creation. And yet we praise God that he is imminent and he is near. Not because he had to be, because he chose to be. 
And so this wisdom you'll, you'll find in Colossians, again, the parallel to this, Colossians 1.26, it's a mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. It's a thing that has to be revealed, and it's being revealed to the saints, to God's people, to his children, to those whom he has chosen. You recall that Jesus was praying and he was thanking God as people were rejecting the gospel, as people were rejecting him as the Christ. He says, God, I thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and that you've revealed them to little children. He goes on to say that all things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. The only way that you will ever, ever, ever know God is the Son has chosen to reveal Him to you because He is hidden. He is secret. He is mysterious. He must be unveiled and revealed. So Paul's prayer is that they would grow in this kind of knowledge. Confident that these are the saints. These are those who have come to trust in Christ Jesus, and they show this by their love towards each other, towards all the saints. He's saying that I pray that you would grow in this again, because this is heaven, further up and further in, always more to discover. I, I couldn't, I didn't have time because the thought didn't come to me until the shower this morning. One of you will immediately know, I think it was maybe Martin Luther, but he says something about you can go out in the ocean into the depths of God's being and never see the bottom. And yet the sea comes all the way up to the shore. Do you understand what I'm saying? That you can't tiptoe in to the waters. That these babies here struggling to stay awake and trying to figure out what in the world I'm talking about and wondering when I'll just be done and they can get a sucker. That, that the water comes all the way up to the shore that God has come. He is so close. He says, I'm revealing myself to these babes. I reveal myself to these ones that don't know anything about the world. And yet as you paddle out into the waters, you'll find you can't find the bottom. This is what it means to know God. That's the purpose for this wisdom and revelation that we would know him. And of course, it's not just just knowledge of God. What does James say that 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 the, the demons believe and they tremble? Every time Jesus would come, we saw this practically in the life of, uh, of Jesus in the ministry of Jesus, he would come into the presence of a man possessed by a demon. They'd say, we know who you are. They knew God. Don't you think about the beginning to the story of Job? It says that the sons of God, I think these are, these are angels, and, and, and Satan is there as well, coming in the presence of God. They know God. More orthodox in their knowing of God than we will ever be. And so there's got to be more than, than this. It's an intimacy. Much more like the way that Adam knew his wife, Eve. He delighted in her. He enjoyed her. He found pleasure in her. God says to his people in Amos 3, 2, that you only have I known of all the families of the earth. So God's unaware of all the other people in the earth? No, he's saying only you do I find this pleasure in. Only you have I chosen for this intimate relationship. And what are the words that we should all tremble at the thought of hearing that we would come into the presence of God at the end of this life and we'd stand before Christ and we'd say, Christ, look at all that I've done before, before your people and all that I've done in your name. I've cast out demons and I've, and, and I've healed people. I've, I've, I've done all these things. And what does he say? Depart from me. What? 
I never knew you. Is it that Jesus didn't know this man's name? No, Scripture says that he knows what is in men. He knows you more than you know yourself. The problem isn't he doesn't have a head knowledge of you. It's the intimacy. That that's the knowing of God that constitutes eternal life. That's his desire for these people. It's the, the kind of knowing that takes what you believe in your mind and it permeates everything that you are. It shapes your affections and it molds your desires and it shows you where to go. It's a whole body. It's a whole soul. It's a whole being kind of knowing. God, I know you in my bones. When you do this, you'll cherish and you'll adore him and your life will be changed. If I can recommend one more book for the year, there'll be more, I'm sure. But I can recommend one more book for the year. It's J.I. Packer's Knowing God. Most of you have probably read it. Please tell me you've already read it. But he he talks about this knowing of God. He says that there's some, some headings in one section. He says, those who know God have great energy for God. Those who know God have great thoughts of God. Those who know God show great boldness for God. Those who know God have great contentment in God. It's not a knowing that can exclude your head. You know this. I've told you, we can't leave our minds at the door. So many people have made this into just an emotional experience and whatever feels right and just whip people up into some kind of a frenzy. We know that can't be it at all. We don't leave our minds at the doors. This doesn't exclude our mind, but it can't stay there. That's why the Apostle Paul goes on and say that he is praying that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. He's talking about our heart. That is is the seat of all that we are. That is the the place where our our desires and our our cravings and and our hopes and our dreams and everything is found in our heart. The seat of the soul's affections, it's it's there. It's It's your heart. It's who you are in your innermost being. That that's your heart. And he's not just praying about your heart, though. He's praying about the eyes of your heart. And anybody knows anything about anatomy knows eyes, hearts don't have eyes. But what are eyes for? Eyes are for telling you the way things are. To tell you what's going on. To receiving and relaying reality to you. For informing our Decisions and shaping our desires. How do you know that something is dangerous? Your eyes warn you. How do you know that something is beautiful? Your eyes tell you. And Jesus has warned over and over throughout his ministry. He says, listen, if the blind lead the blind, they both end up in a pit. He said elsewhere that if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And he's not talking about just a physical seeing, of course. There was many times throughout his ministry that he, he would illustrate this with physical seeing, when he would heal blind men. Remember the one blind man that he healed with two touches, a reminder that we need this constant touch from God. What Paul is praying for right here. God, this isn't a one-time deal, that you would consistently, by the working of your spirit, by the intercession of Christ Jesus, you would continually touch them and bring them to clearer sight. That's his hope for them. They wouldn't be blind people, that they wouldn't have their eyes darkened, because when your eyes are darkened, all of you becomes darkened because you don't know what's what. So he's saying here that he prays that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened, not darkened, that they would see things as they really are. That things that once seemed really, really, really scary, in that very same thing, they may now find their ultimate hope. And things that were once very much enticing now look disgusting to them. You see, because 
Christ Jesus is already beautiful. He's not saying, Jesus, won't you just be more beautiful so they'll want you? Because he is beautiful. And again, I remind you that he's praying to the Father of glory. If, if, if we just camped out there for a while and considered what that means, you're the Father, the source, the end of all that is glory and beautiful. Don't we spend our life looking for things that are beautiful and pleasing? And satisfying, he's saying, I've got it right here, the Father of glory. If your eyes would just be open and you would just see him as he is, the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. He didn't have to become something he's not. He didn't have to become something different to you and different to you and different to you based on what your own preferences are. He's not a chameleon. He is the Father of glory. If you could just get your eyes on him, if you could just see him as he is, if your eyes would just be enlightened. So we just walked through the Advent season. What, what did we what did we do? We didn't focus so much on, on the Christmas story. Perhaps there'll be a year when we will focus more on what's a manger and where does Bethlehem sit on the map and all, all those more cultural things. But we just talked about who Christ was. I didn't try to present to you some cultural Jesus or some uh, the Jesus that I thought would make you happy or that you wanted this time of year or the Jesus that, that somehow meets you right where you are. I presented the only Jesus that is trusting that he is glorious and beautiful. Praying by the spirit of God, you would see him as he is. And knowing that only God can do this. That an Ethiopian can't change the color of his skin, that a leopard can't change his spots and that a guy with bad eyes can't fix them himself. That the Holy Spirit is the great optometrist. He's got to do the work. He's, Paul's going to go on to talk about the, the, the power of God in raising Christ Jesus from the dead. And we recognize it takes that same kind of power to cause a man to see. That's, that's what we pray for. That's what we pray for our children for. I pray that's what you pray for your children for is, God, would you just shine the light, the same power that you breathe the stars with, by that same power, would you just illuminate their hearts? Would you just shine your glory in the face of your son into their hearts? But it takes that kind of power. Do you understand? It's not a thing that men can do. We can't figure out the right buttons to push. We can't figure out the right strings to pull. I can't figure out the right words or worldly wisdom to present. It's only the thing that God can do, and it's incredibly powerful when he does it. The same kind of power that he raised his son from the dead. The same kind of power that he breathed the stars. By that same power, he raises men to life and he gives them eyes to see. And lightens the eyes of their heart. That that's the dual working of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the revealer of God's word. Both in the sense that he took all that Jesus said and did and was and imparted it to these men. And then gave them the words to inscribe on paper for us. And then ensure that these copies, that these transcripts, that they were, they were faithfully handed down to us, that we could have copies now before us. But there's still more work that has to be done. Again, just as we live in a time when we've got more information on our hands than ever before, we live in a time when we're surrounded by more Bibles than ever before. Getting the word here is one work of the Holy Spirit, and we praise God for that work. But he must do the rest of the work. Must enlighten the eyes of our heart. 
As Paul says, the natural person, man, that has not had this work done in him, if the Holy Spirit hasn't come in power and done this thing, they will not receive the things of the Spirit of God. It takes a spiritual discernment, the work of the Spirit of God, to receive them. In fact, they cannot understand them. They can't understand them. That's the work that must be done. And so it can be so tempting. I'm telling you as a pastor, as a father, it can be so tempting to say, well, I hold up Christ as he is and they don't want him. Let me figure out what they want and then give them some of that. And maybe that's a way that I can tiptoe them in to the deeper things. Just deliver them to the things that seem pleasing to their eyes. Let me, they've got dark eyes now, but... You know what? I've got, to, I've got to baby them into it. I've got, to, I've got to reel them in. And so I'm going to give them the things that are pleasing. Give them the things that they say they want. And eventually maybe this thing will happen. Eventually maybe they'll see Jesus and find him beautiful and delightful. But you need to be reminded that the problem that these people have here. It's a spiritual one. That just as what it takes. For us to see and receive and know God like this is a heart change. That the problem these people have is a heart problem. What did Paul say in Romans 1? That the world knows God. Couldn't know him unless he revealed himself, but he has revealed himself in the stars and in the mountains and in the elephants and in the hippos and in the beautiful babies that we hold in our hands. He's revealed himself. He's written something of his law upon their hearts. And what does the scripture say that they do with that? They suppress it. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. And the glory of God for created things. I was listening to some stuff this week by a guy named Greg Bonson. And he he compared it to the world. You've seen people that, that get into a swimming pool. And they take a beach ball or a volleyball. And they try to hold it under the water. It's the picture of the world. And we don't do those people any help by saying, okay, let me give you some other things that you like better. Let me present you some things that are enticing to your flesh and then hope that something changes here. No, they're working with everything within them to suppress the truth. To hold it underwater. Because to stand before this glorious God is to feel helpless and naked and exposed and challenged in our sin. Paul's going to go on to say in Ephesians 5.18 that they're darkened in their understanding, that they're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. What did Simeon say to Mary after telling her that her own soul would also be pierced by a sword? But he said that this child that you hold in your arms now, that before him, the hearts, the thoughts of the hearts of many will be exposed. That when you come into the presence of Christ as he really is. See, I can present to you a Christ that isn't and your hearts wouldn't be exposed and you wouldn't feel challenged. But when I present to you the Christ that is, the God, the Father of glory, and I call you to know him, it's going to expose some things about your heart. Do I want him or do I not? People's hearts are being exposed when we do this work. So we don't do each other favors then when we try to present an ulterior, an alternate Jesus. An unchallenging Jesus. We present Christ Jesus who is. The one in whom we can know the father of glory. And we trust that by the spirit of God, the children of God will rejoice. Knowing that the sons of the devil 
those with darkened eyes, they'll be repulsed. So I pray that this would be our aim. This is a timely message. I didn't pick that we would be here at New Year's, but I pray that this would be our aim as a church coming into this new year. I pray that you would pray for me and I will continue to pray for you and you would pray for each other that we would more fully know God. The eyes of our heart would be enlightened to behold him as he really is and that in that we would be changed. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you that you have made yourself known, that you have revealed yourself to a people who would have never found you. Father, that is my prayer. That we would not be satisfied with what we think we know of you, but that we would desire more. (laughs) Father, I pray that you would continually, through the continued touch and work of your spirit, you would continually enlighten our eyes. Do not allow us to wander or to play around with the darkness. But to relish and to rejoice in the light. Father, we love you, we trust you, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.